Hello, this is your host, Stuart McIntosh, and welcome to this episode of 3030 Vision, a podcast answering hard economic questions we're facing today. In this month's episode, we're joined by G30 member Paul Krugman. Paul is a distinguished professor of economics and a distinguished scholar at the Stone Centre for Socioeconomic Inequality at the Graduate Centre and City University of New York. He's also served on the faculties of Princeton University, MIT, Yale, and Stanford. And in 2008, he was the sole recipient of the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his work on international trade theory. Paul is the author or editor of more than 25 books and over 200 published professional articles. And well known to the general public as an op-ed columnist and blogger for the New York Times, indeed, it's reasonable to say that Paul's work and his voice reaches further than almost any other economist in the modern uh, period. Please note that the views expressed in each of these podcast episodes are those of the featured guest only and don't represent the views of the group of 30, its members or their respective institutions. Thank you very much for listening to today's podcast and let's get started. Paul Krugman, thank you very much for joining 3030 Vision and uh, the G30's new podcast. It's a pleasure to see you. Uh, it's great to be uh, doing this for an organization I've been associated with for a long, long time. Well, it's an honor for us, of course, to have uh, you on uh, because you are arguably the most widely read economist in the world and uh, one of the most influential as well. And I wanted to perhaps delve into your area of specialism, that is to say, trade and economics, where you won your Nobel Prize for your work there, and start off a bit broadly and say, well, you know, liberal globalization, as you and I think of it or thought of it 20 years ago, the 1990s variety seems to be changing. I mean, the percentage of trade as a, as a, as a, as a, as a percent of global GDP sort of plateaued, it's fluctuated a bit, drop down a bit, uh, but it's it seems to have peaked. Uh, the World Trade Organization is pretty moribund at the moment. The rules-based system of free trade is under strain. Um, what do you think went wrong with that conception of globalization? W what are the dynamics underway that, that have caused it to wane somewhat? Okay, so the first thing we need to do is have... Um not get too excited about the share of trade in world GDP. Um, the very rapid increase that we saw between the late 1980s and roughly the global financial crisis um, was not something that you can always expect to happen. There's a widespread belief that uh, advancing technology and all of that always leads to an increased share of trade, an increased globalization. Uh, but that's actually not right on the logic and hasn't been true historically. It just, we've had periods when globalization rises a lot. And basically we had, I'd say mainly two roughly one-time events. Uh, 
uh, the rise of containerized shipping um, and the entry of a lot of developing countries into the world trading system as they either became market-based economies or uh, turned away from the old import uh, substitution policies towards a, an outward orientation. So you wouldn't have expected trade to keep on growing the way it had been. And the fact that it plateaued uh, is not necessarily a sign of trouble. Uh, the What is true is that the political basis for the uh, for the global trading system has eroded. Uh, you know, formally, the WTO is not functioning very well. Uh, informally, the WTO you know, has no real power as, except insofar as the major players in the system are prepared to give it power. And what we've seen is a, um, it, not so much that there's a, a really, we don't yet have a major protectionist backlash, but we certainly have um, we're seeing that the United States and the EU and, of course, China have other priorities. So, uh, the, you know, the end of the uh, glorious age of globalization was probably inevitable, but the system is definitely under strain as well. And you yourself have talked about elements of that globalization becoming hyper-globalization and that this may have yeah. damaged the system or damaged support for the process of globalization. Uh, and the anger that we see amongst citizens, I mean, in America, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, did did globalization of that type really leave workers behind in some meaningful sense? Well, that's something where we've actually had a big change. I certainly had a big change in how we view it. Uh, we used to focus on sort of broad questions of income distribution and whether workers were hurt um, in the aggregate by globalization. And the answer is... Uh, Advanced country workers were to some extent hurt by labor-intensive imports, but those were always fairly modest numbers. What advocates, you know, I, I was very pro-globalization, I still am in many ways, but what advocates didn't think about was um, that it's not aggregates, that what you actually see, particularly during surges of, of, of trade, is that there are very strong localized effects. So we, we now talk a lot about the China shock. Um, and the China shock was not so much that it depressed workers, the wages of workers um, in the United States generally, as that Chinese imports struck very hard at very specific industries in specific locations. So if you are looking at you know, maybe one to two million jobs were displaced, which is not a big deal in an economy the size of the United States where this that where there's constant churn in the labor force. But if you look at the furniture industry in, uh, uh, in, in, in Hickory, North Carolina, then you suddenly see the, the heart of a, of a local industrial cluster just torn out. And so we, we failed. I think we didn't think hard enough about how much, um, how much the, uh, the costs of adjusting to rising globalization would fall at least temporarily, but you know, uh, not that temporarily on uh, specific groups of workers. Yes, the, the, you're absolutely right that the the benefits are diffuse and broad, but the the pain appears uh, severe and and focused and 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 difficult to deal with. And on that on that front, I I wonder whether America is particularly vulnerable to backlash because uh, we've done a very poor job, it seems to me, of mitigating the adverse effects of the 
of the free trade that we've been supportive of. In other words, we're not very good at retraining our workers. We don't have those systems in place we don't support them properly and when i compare what we do or do not do in the united states with what is done in many countries of europe in europe for instance it's a very different picture do you think we did uh, a poor job of mitigating the pain of these workers well we do we do a poor job of mitigating pain of workers you know, in all cases, it's, I mean, retraining, I, I'm not sure. I think there's still a lot of debate about how effective that is, how effective adjustment aid is, and so on down the line. But the, uh, uh, you know, in America, um, we have an extremely weak social safety net. So if you're uh, in America, if you lose your job, you very well likely uh, lose your health care. Um, if um uh, you certainly don't have a, you know, there's no uh, sustained family aid. I mean, globalization is only one source of pain for workers. Um, and arguably, technological changes, just general changes in the economy are much bigger than globalization. But we uh, we have in the United States, we just don't have very much support for people who've run into bad luck one way or another and uh the difference about globalization is there's an easy villain you blame it on imports and so the you know, the, the weakness of our safety net combines with uh the fact that in fact the, the shocks from globalization were bigger than people like me had fully realized uh does does make the united states uh especially vulnerable and it's and it seems at least when one looks at the industrial strategy announced by the Biden administration that part of what they've done is in response to that is to is is to move significantly and to, you might even say radically to restructure and recreate an American industrial policy that in part addresses some of these weaknesses uh, addresses some of these complaints when I and, and also integrates that industrial strategy with national security strategy. So I'm thinking of the 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 the, the prohibitions of tr trade in certain goods with China, for instance, uh, as a national security goal, but also linked to uh, some of the green goals that are in the IRA. When you look at that new industrial strategy, uh, do you do you support that shift that that is quite significant and different from previous American administrations. Yeah, I mean, I support it, but partly because I don't think it's really about what it might appear to be about. I mean, the Biden administration talks about creating you know, jobs in manufacturing, which they do hope will happen. Uh, but this is not the 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 United States has made a, a pretty sharp turn towards industrial policy now, but not for the traditional reason that they think it's going to uh, accelerate economic growth uh, and not even mostly uh, about job creation and manufacturing. It's mostly about uh, trying to find a politically feasible way of doing other stuff. And that's really the case in the in case of, of green energy that, um, uh, you know, economists can argue till they're blue in the face that, we should have a carbon tax and that's the right strategy, but that was not going to happen is not going to happen for, you know, for some years uh, in on the U S political scene, but the Biden administration believed that co uh, correctly that they could just sell a strategy of subsidies for green energy 
uh, that also amounts to an industrial policy, and that's actually a, a crucial selling point. Now, that's, uh, but it has to has to have some nationalism in it. If you're not promise, if you're promising that that the subsidies will create manufacturing jobs, but someplace else, then it's not going to work. So, but we we certainly are seeing that that the priority of getting an energy transition underway uh, trumped, to use the probably the wrong word there, but trumped the the priority of uh, of of maintaining a fully open uh, world trading system. And uh, I think that had to be done. Then the national security thing is, you know, that's always been a part of the GATT. I think it's Article 22 of the GATT says that basically you can do whatever you need to to protect your national security. Um, but we mostly thought, well, there were hardly any cases where that would really apply. But the world has changed. And now the uh, a pretty stiff, uh, we, are, we are basically engaged in a kind of uh, economic Cold War with China have been uh, for a while. And uh, this is just an extension of that. So we're, we're yes, that's right. And so we're, we're in, we're in sort of com- competing industrial strategies, as well as a cold, cold war. Uh, when, when I think about that competing industrial strategy, and, and how that's playing out, the, the administration, as, as you know, has said, and does say, I believe, Leo Brainerd is saying today that it's creating those jobs. So the nar- their narrative is, it's creating a lot of jobs, although they haven't spent any money yet, very little money, but there's a lot of commitments of private sector money already. Um, when you think when you think about that, how, I mean, are, are, are you guardedly optimistic that, you know, two years, three years, if, if, we're, if, if the policy is given enough time to run and actually get the shovels in the ground and the money out the door, that, that we will see those jobs accrue because of this new industrial policy or 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 do you stick with the view that that's really a sideshow uh issue well we will see substantial numbers of jobs created associated with the industrial policy uh whether those will be net jobs is very doubtful uh the you know the the uh, in the end uh u.s employment is determined by how how many people the Fed thinks can be working without causing unacceptable inflation, um, but it's they will be different jobs. So you will see uh, some revival of manufacturing. Probably, uh, we'll certainly see some revival of manufacturing as it happens in areas that are very depressed in the United States right now. So this is um, there. You know the Bush, uh, the uh, the Biden people are trying to kill multiple birds with with one stone here, and one of the things they're hoping to do is address the the problem of depressed regions, which is one of the issues that we fail to think about enough as globalization increased. Um, but you know, ultimately, a lot of it is about uh, creating facts. Uh, it's not. We're not. We don't just have a green industrial policy. We have something which is designed to be extremely hard for future politicians to reverse, mm-hmm. so that they can't just go back to uh, go to burning fossil fuels and ignoring the climate, because there will be so many jobs tied up with the subsidies that uh, that will be hard to get rid of them. Yes, and when I think about the locations of these new plants, many of them at least appears to be based are ba- are based in the the Bible Belt in these in these poorer areas. They're not historically democratic voting areas. So, uh, is that in it, could that be viewed as a partial sort of 
guarantee or or attempt to make sure, as you say, that these that 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 the benefits accrue in such a way that you can't roll it back later. Oh, very much so. I mean, this is and you know, I this is in a way taking what we normally think of as a flaw in the political process, which is the that people uh, are much more attuned to sort of immediate costs and benefits, uh, localized ones, than to sort of aggregate uh, benefits to the economy as a whole, um, that instead of uh, fighting that, they're trying to exploit that to pursue what is a highly desirable goal for other reasons, which is fighting climate change. Um, And the idea, yeah, is definitely that it's, you know, if we had a, if we were doing what Econ 101 says, and we had an emissions tax, uh, then the moment uh, Republicans uh, had unified control of of, of government again, they, that tax would, would be repealed. But uh, since we're actually doing it by subsidizing battery plants in in uh, uh, in the eastern heartland, uh, this can be much much harder to take away the money, and um, so the policy we hope will endure. When I'm thinking about that, I, I, it does seem to me, and, and and I wonder whether you would agree that I mean we've got we've got very large carrots in the IRA and the other pieces of industrial policy that are being uh, rolled out in America now. But we, as you say, we don't have very large sticks or any sticks at all. It seems we're yeah. left with other options like regulatory uh, uh, easing for the production of of wind and solar and for the the placing of those plants and so on. I know uh, Panetta, the the sort of the, the regulatory czar who's supposed to be overseeing the rollout of this, this vast uh, series of projects, uh, is focused very tightly on the regulatory aspects and the, and the permitting aspects. Is that one way of getting to, uh, if not sticks, at least uh, changing, changing the reality on the ground that stops short of a carbon tax, but still gets some of the regulatory sting that is necessary to shift people who don't want to move with 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 incentives. Yeah, it's it's definitely. Uh, I mean, altogether, it, carrots are easier to sell than sticks, um, and the uh, the regulatory stuff arguably is stuff that we should have been doing anyway. We you know just in America, it's very hard to build anything, and so we're now getting a push to make it much easier to build stuff in the name of saving the planet, uh, which is. You know, that's 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 a good thing to be doing in any case. Um, and it's also probably worth pointing out that even on uh, purely conventional economic grounds, leaving aside the sort of political calculations, which are uppermost here, but still the idea that simply um, putting on a carbon tax, if, if you could have somehow managed to do it, would be the right policy is probably not right. I mean, these, these are all technologies where there are strong learning curves, there are really strong network effects. Uh, if you want to shift to electric vehicles, people won't buy electric vehicles unless they think there's going to be charging stations and people won't build charging stations unless they think there's going to be lots of electric vehicles. All of those things are kind of reasons why you probably wanted to have an industrial policy anyway. Uh, as it is, we're going to go for only industrial policy plus regulatory reform to make that industrial policy work which is politics. But look, you live in the world you live in and far better to be doing this than not. So so the 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 question I suppose or the the final challenge is 
the extent to which these policies can uh, have enough time to 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 run to impact the strategies and businesses and markets in the United States. I mean, is it is it essential in your mind that that uh, that Biden has another term or that the the that 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 he wins the next election if he if he is to essentially cement these industrial strategies and policies in a way that in the way that achieves the the green goals i know that's a, a kind of politicized question but i mean yeah one can imagine that if 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 president if president trump or candidate trump or one of his colleagues were to win in 2024 we could get a a partial or significant reversal of all of these policies. Yeah, although there are a lot of reasons to be worried about what would happen if if Trump wins in twenty twenty four, and I'm not sure that that uh, industrial policy. Well, it's it's a pretty big deal because we were worried about about climate. Uh, uh, but you know, it's it's only one of of several severe worries. But yeah, this is um, uh, it will be a lot harder to go back to a uh fossil fuel based economy um if plants producing uh non-fossil energy uh related stuff green energy um are already established and employing hopefully hundreds of thousands of people so sure this is a very much a, a strategy of trying to lock in things that we need to be doing um which you know um that's nothing works if if uh, if we have a scorched earth destruction of all of anything that that Biden did uh, in in two years. But if we can get forward on this, then uh, yeah, it's it then it might be that you know when uh, the next Republican president uh, will not in fact go back. Just just as uh, I mean, it's a completely different area. But you know, uh, Obamacare was able to stay in effect long enough that trying to get rid of it turned out to be impossible and we could be getting to the same place on green industrial policy which is important actually more important than almost anything else i i take that point and it, it reminds me of the seeing seeing republican local officials now uh, supporting the industrial policy not uh, for for reasons of jobs and investment and so on, and so it's maybe it's changing the conversation, as you say, and that's a, that's at least a hopeful thought that that even if even if the politics changes somewhat in two years, perhaps uh, perhaps the basis of a of, of a fundamental shift is underway. Paul, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, and I, we appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us on Thirty Thirty Vision. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for tuning in today. If you'd enjoyed this episode of 3030 Vision, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Stuart McIntosh. This podcast was brought to you by the Group of 30. 
as produced by Desiree Maruka. Show music is composed and performed by Michael Janicki. For more information about the G30's work, visit group30.org and follow us on Twitter, Twitter at groupof30.